Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider history. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Today's episode, The Assassination of Hypatia. It's March 415 AD and we're in Alexandria, now part of the Eastern Roman Empire. It's here that a woman, who's perhaps in her 60s, is making her way through the city when she's suddenly attacked by a group of Christian monks. The woman is pioneering mathematician and philosopher Hypatia. She's dragged from her carriage and then brutally murdered and dismembered. It's a warning to those that would resist the Christian faith. In this episode, I'm joined by ancient world expert and host of Legit's Classics podcast, Jasmine Elmer. Together, we're going to explore the life of one of antiquity's most fascinating women and unravel the troubling sequence of events that led to her untimely death. But there's something I need to clear up first. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. There's something I need to clear up first, though. I don't actually know how we pronounce the name of the person that we're talking about. For clarity, I thought I knew. I thought it was Hypatia. But then I was watching something ahead of our conversation today, you know, to do my usual swatting up. And the expert referred to her as Hepatia. So what do we do in these situations? Help. Well, you know, like, first of all, like, I don't want to say I don't care because that sounds like it's not an important point to make. But, you know, this is one of the problems with classics. There are so many possible different ways that we could pronounce her name. We can't entirely know exactly how it was pronounced at that time for a number of different reasons so although it's greek um it's a little bit later on and obviously this is in egypt so you know what what kind of greek are they speaking there that's why you get these different versions you get this a lot with latin and greek as well and why people get afraid rebecca because it's terrifying because you think i don't want to say it wrong and look stupid so really just stick with one all are valid all of them have arguments for and against so I've always called her either Hypatia or Hypatia, depending on how I feel. But we can just go for Hypatia, if you like. Hypatia. Okay, good. It's, it's, it's important to get this straight across for people because don't let that be a barrier when you're freaking out thinking, I don't know what to say because there are so many different things. I mean, scholars are still debating half the names of, of people in the classical period. So just say what you like and just try and be consistent, I think, is, is, is the real plan. Oh, I like this. I like this. Okay, so she's Hypatia. Jasmine, you are the Time Lord today. You're taking us back in time. Can you set the scene? We're going back to Roman Egypt. Hypatia, we're not sure exactly when Hypatia was born, but potentially two different dates were given. 370 AD was the sort of original suggestion, but nowadays um, scholars are thinking maybe 350. And so she's born into, you know, Roman Alexandria. So although it's Egypt, we come away from the idea of kind of ancient Egypt, we're dealing with Roman Egypt. At this time, it's Alexandria, so one of the major cities at the time, the port of Alexandria. It's a massive melting pot uh, of all different cultures, which is what people should first of all know about Alexandria because it's a really cool place. Because of where it is, we get all different religions and races and all sorts of people mingling together in Alexandria and super famous because of its library. So Hypatia is the the daughter uh, of a guy called Theon, um, who, you know, essentially is a great thinker, philosopher, mathematician, astronomer, 
that has a school there and Hypatia is involved in that scholarly work with him. And then, you know, in her own right, she she is an astronomer, mathematician. And we believe that, you know, that she wrote lots of commentaries on previous works like by Ptolemy and people like that. And so contributed to the field of mathematics, astronomy. You know, she's unusual because she's a woman. She taught. She was a philosopher herself. Uh, she was a neoplatonic philosopher. So, you know, she's a really interesting character because we don't have a lot of female teachers like her with, that had, you know, kind of good reputation and fame and also reportedly one of the first female mathematicians that we know of. I'm always a bit scared of those sorts of things because, you know, there's a whole world out there. <laughs> when we come to her, we're coming at a time of religious strife and turmoil uh, in, in Roman Egypt. So it's very fractious. There are lots of things going on between Christians and Jews and pagans. So it's a period of real change in the Roman Empire. And, you know, this is a great example story of kind of those tensions and how they work together so she's she's in the middle of that storm basically so so this is quite an exciting time to be alive but it's also it's also an exciting time to be looking at from a historical point of view so you kind of touched upon her role within mathematics so mathematics forgive me if i'm wrong here please please do correct me but mathematics at this time is all about measurement. They're measuring the distance between different objects, particularly when they look at the stars. And so there's kind of a natural beauty in this, maybe because it's you know celestial in its nature. They're looking at the, the cosmos to reveal truths. But there's one object that she's associated with that's just a beautiful object in and of itself. Now, I don't think she invented it, but she did create her own, and it's called the astrolabe. My understanding of this astrolabe is that it's a kind of portable astronomical calculator, and it was used until the 19th century. So in that sense, you're right, it's to do with calculation, I think, of distances. But, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing invention. Some of the things that, that are going on around Hypatia's time, that some of which we might be able to attribute to her or not, are things that were used, you know, way up to 17th, 18th, 19th century. So you're right that they're kind of looking at instruments and mathematical measurements in a way that give you the, the building blocks, I would say, of kind of how modern astronomy works. But but also for listeners, um, I know this is a podcast, so you should be able to just consume it with your ears. Um, but if you do get the chance to have a quick Google, Google one of these objects because they're just they're just beautiful items they're almost like something from his dark materials just a really gorgeous little pieces of history that you can um dissect and have a look at so so do that back to Hypatia so could you tell me what she was like as a person I mean obviously she's this big legendary figure now but she was also a real human being living in a you know in a real period of time what was life like for her that's a really good question. And again, you know, we've got to be, I'm going to do the usual historian thing that make everyone get really kind of bored. But we have to be a bit careful because once again, we don't have anything from her directly. We are learning about her personal life through others. And usually those other people are men. They have their own agendas. So we just have to be a bit careful with that. Once I've done my disclaimer, I can I can carry on. But but, you know, what was her life like? I mean, by all intents and purposes, she'd managed to create a life for herself where she was a very respected teacher she was a wonderful thinker. Very famously, again, according to these sources, she would have her classes and they were extremely popular. And that's really rare in the classical world, you know, for us to have women 
uh, at the centre of teaching in this way. So she would have, I can imagine, and a really engaging person. So she was unmarried, uh, possibly celibate, um, it, it, which is something that, you know, Plato occasionally teaches and, you know, really dedicated herself to her love of, of philosophy and, and astronomy. She was reportedly, again, there are some later texts that say how beautiful she was, that so these texts are kind of like 10th century, but um, that she was a very beautiful woman. Yeah, they always say, they always say that these women are, are beautiful. Why do they, why do they objectify women in such a way why do they do this to us well i think i mean we could get this as a whole pod isn't it you know what beauty is in the eye of the beholder i wonder i wonder if for, some, for someone like hypatia let if we take away her physical beauty for a minute you can imagine that she was quite commanding quite unusual and that may or may not have been attractive or a form of beauty anyway but um you know, beautiful nonetheless, again, if you wish to accept that, like it's like you say, maybe they like to objectify women. Who knows? Probably they did. But it was this this thing called the Pseudo Lexicon, which is a 10th century encyclopedia. So it's much later as well. So I don't know what the source is for this. But she was called as she was described as exceedingly beautiful and fair of form in speech, articulate and logical in her actions, prudent and public spirited. And the rest of the city gave her suitable welcome and accorded her special respect. So actually, there's a little bit about her physical beauty, but a lot about her qualities in that. So maybe maybe that's a little bit of evidence what I'm saying. So anyway, but that, that's quite fun, that bit, because there's this famous, again, uh, thing that she did, supposedly, again, reportedly, that um, she, men would obviously come on to her because she was... You know, she was fit, apparently. Um, and they would come on to her and she would rebuff them all the time. And one time, apparently, she got out her menstrual rags and showed them to a man and said, is this what you want? You know, kind of really like pushing her femininity onto him. And I assume freaking him out. I don't know. But I mean, that just makes her badass to me. That's that's amazing. So, you know, she's living this really scholarly life is what I'm trying to say. You know, she definitely tried to, I think, cut herself off from from the traditional things that women are doing at those times, which is you you marry, you have children, you don't have the chance of a career, you know. So she like she's definitely a rebel, I think, for sure. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that story about her and the menstrual cloth. It's just it's just so raw. It's such a raw anecdote, and you just think, yes, you do that, Hypatia. <laughs> so Obviously, she had all, all of these, or supposedly had all of these admirers that she was rebuffing, but not all of her male associates were ad admirers in that capacity. They were admirers of her work, and it's through them and their letters and correspondence that we're able to piece together parts of her life. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, she has a few a few uh, very dedicated, you know, followers, if you like, or, you know, uh, pupils. And one of them um, writes letters to her, and that's uh, Synesius. Possibly as well, I mean, it's hard again to know, but Orestes, who's someone that's involved in this political turmoil, uh, who was the Alexandrian governor, so, you know, kind of Roman, Roman appointed governor of this region. It, he was he, he was possibly one of her pupils as well. But, you know, her work resonated with so many people and, you know, it could, could, could have absolutely inspired all sorts of different other works as well. Let's lean into this political turmoil a little bit because it obviously had a huge bearing on, well, the end of her life, I guess. Could you expand on what you've mentioned about religion and, and possibly the regime changes as well? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you know any Roman history, you know that the Roman Empire became a Christian empire. And, you know, that happens a few times, actually. <laughs> it go, it dips back into paganism at, at one point. But just to be super clear, you know, like Rome is a, a you know polytheistic pagan society traditionally. So we have all the, the Roman gods that you can probably think of. And then, you know, through time, to, through, through different emperors like Constantine and we have, you know, Rome um, adopting a Christian faith officially, which you can imagine is a huge turmoil for, for, for and change for the entire empire because we're going from, you know, multi-god system to one god. And it's it that create you know, there are ripples for so long, about <laughs> for a really long time in all areas of Roman life. And so, you know, we, we come in at a time where Rome is Christian. There are there are difficulties going on. And there is like, you know, constant debates um, about how they're going to, you know, this is not just the whole fract you know, fractiousness between pagan and Christian. We also have Jewish population, uh, but we have this also with Christianity, especially early Christianity. They're kind of still trying to work out who they are uh, early on in Hypatia's life, depending on the dates of when she was born. So it could have been before or around the time she was born. Um, we had the Emperor Julian who came in and said, oh, let's go back to paganism. So in rejected Christianity. So you can see how how kind of difficult this period is. And Alexandria is extra difficult because of because of the, the melting pot of population there. Yeah, I, I can imagine that this is a place where people are more more educated and worldly aware. So they're probably more comfortable intellectualizing the idea of religion than perhaps someone in a small village in I don't know Italy nothing wrong with Italy a small village is in Italy I love Italy it was just an example yeah no I totally hear what you're saying so yes it was well known as a seat of kind of like scholarly debate and obviously that's what Hypatia is doing with her work as well but you know I think you have these pockets all over the empire but you know these, these I want just to be clear though that these ripples are being felt all over the empire in all sorts of communities, small and big. So the thing that makes Alexandria different isn't necessarily that it's this place of scholarly debate and kind of, you know, evaluation or anal analytics or however else you want to, you know, think about it. But it's also because of its position that it just has, re not I don't want to say uniquely, but because of where it is, it has a particular, very, very multicultural, you know, society and we have, you know, you have Christians and Jews and pagans and different, like I said, different races as well, living re in really close quarters and at a time of turmoil, particularly between uh, Christians and non-Christians, but also the Jewish population too. So you can just see it's like a powder keg, isn't it? It's like it's not, it's, it, it's like that all over the Roman Empire, I'd say, but it's just so concentrated in this particular place as well. So it's kind of a really strange time to be, I guess, authentically yourself. And Hypatia is a pagan and it will be a really hard time to be a pagan. And she was friendly. She was, pro, you know, she was friendly with Christians uh, and, and I think, you know, quite happy to put those differences aside, those religious beliefs aside. But nonetheless, was a pagan. And, and in the end, that's going to not be a, not be a good thing. <laughs> not to spoiler alert it so she's she's quite a, a high profile pagan as well and obviously being a woman she stands out even more how did she become caught up in the events that led to well to her demise yeah absolutely well i mean this is the, the kind of interesting bit so like i said you've got these 
warring factions, but you have, you know, Orestes, who I mentioned earlier on, is the um, governor of, of the city. As far as we can tell, Orestes and Hypatia are kind of friendly. And like I said, it's possible that he was involved in her uh, lessons as well, you know, kind of her teachings. Was he a Christian? Yes, absolutely right. So he was a, he was a Christian, but he didn't really want the church to dominate too much. Whereas he had an opponent who was called Cyril, which is the best name ever because he sounds so innocuous. <laughs> Actually, it's pretty bad in this story. So then this Cyril guy, archbishop or you know, evolved in the church as well, is having a fight with Orestes essentially about, about the role of the church and things like that. So they're kind of coming up against each other. So Cyril actually tries, or again, supposedly, to get some monks to kill Orestes and it fails. In retaliation, Orestes has the leader of the monks tortured to death, which exacerbates tensions between himself and Cyril. The story goes that Orestes then turns to Hypatia for impartial advice. In tandem, one of Hypatia's former students asks her to speak out against those discriminated against. This in turn places Hypatia under the radar of the militant monks who are associated with Archbishop Cyril and support radical religious change within Alexandria. The way that Hypatia gets stuck in into all this is because she potentially was an easier target. Because she, like I say, she's female, she was unarmed. Orestes had loads of guards at this time and, and had appealed to Rome and all sorts of stuff. So it was probably easier to go for Hypatia. So that's how she kind of got embroiled in it, which is a real shame, actually, because I can't, we can't really know how involved she was politically, but it was absolutely kind of a mixture of her tenacity as a woman being out there and doing something different and then being stuck just like the wrong time in all of this that ultimately leads to her death. Should we get to the moment when this happened? Because, well, it is awful. This is where the connection to Cyril becomes, we're not, you know, a bit careful because it's actually a group of Christian zealots led by a guy called Peter the Lector that decides to go and get Hypatia. Can we say that's definitely Cyril that sent them? Well, I don't know, but it makes sense. They got her from her carriage and dragged her out of her carriage into a church where they stripped her and they beat her to death with roofing tiles. And then once she died, they tore her body apart and burned it. So it's that kind of real, real damnation of a body, isn't it? It's not, it's like, you know, kind of this, although she would have been killed, presumably from the roofing tiles and the beatings, you know, the fact that they felt the need to tear her limb from limb and burn her is just wow, isn't it? I mean, you, the thinking behind, I can't say the thinking behind any of it, but, you know, like, that's just, we really, really want to send a message here. It's just awful. I mean, it's rage, it's dehumanising, it's a symbolic death. And, in, and importantly for a pagan, her body is torn and burnt. It's very hard for her. She won't have a proper burial. Um, so it's kind of a, a, an eternal damnation of somebody that can't receive a proper burial and therefore kind of be in the underworld and, and, and live that kind of life. So I, I presume that's why they denied her body, you know, from being intact and being taken away to be buried. Hypatia's death shocked the Roman Empire and served as a turning point in the politics of Alexandria. Other thinkers left the city and its position as a centre of learning gradually declined. On an individual level, she evolved into an almost legendary figure, becoming something of a martyr for learning. 
I hate to ask this, but I think it's important. Would we even know about her if her death hadn't been so brutal? That's a really good question. Do you know what? Yeah, I reckon we would. And I and I think I think she would have been mentioned anyway because she you know because of her contributions. I think and I think she made an impact in her life regardless of her death. I think that you know later individuals have become fascinated by her story. She became a symbol for feminists, a martyr to pagans. That Voltaire used her to condemn the church and religion. Charles Kingsley made you know made her the subject of a Victorian romance and so we're inspired by her story but I, it's a really good point about the death because the tragedy in that I think makes it quite well memorable so I, I, I hear you but then she was already unusual in being being a woman scholar of that time and that's why that's why I don't want to assume there's only a death that makes her interesting to contemporary historians and later historians as well because because I think people do see the validity and interest in her work. You see the cynic in me thinks if she hadn't had such a dramatic death then she wouldn't have been so famous and if she wasn't so famous we might not have been looking for hints of her life in texts and places which is obviously annoying. You are right that her death will amplify her to some degree absolutely but I, I think it does her a bit of a disservice to think that then then her unusual ability to be a female scholar a respected one at that time wasn't also notable and interesting to people what's your big takeaway on Hypatia like what what are the headlines that listeners should take away from this podcast I think having from the ancient world perspective having a a female figure that was respected as a teacher is is a really important point Uh, and looking at that and looking at that what that tells us in itself and then what that can tell us about attitudes towards women in general I think it's fantastic evidence for kind of what Alexandria was like at this time and because of her story it allows for so much understanding of the context of the time I think what we just talked about Hypatia and feminism and paganism being a symbol I think that's really interesting too from all the angles that we've just spoken about and I think the last thing is the humanity of it like you say it's easy for us to talk about this woman that lived ages ago but this is a real person's life regardless of where the truth lies in all of the things we've spoken about today. That was a woman that was, you know, brutally killed, you know, and I think that spending a moment to think about that and the impact of that, especially for women today, we're still on our mission <laughs> as women to kind of think about that, I think is 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 kind of interesting as well. So those would be my main takeaways. I think she's a fantastic character. She's fascinating. And I'm really interested in, you know, looking at where future scholarly work goes with her and, and what else we can find out about her maybe 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 there's a scroll there waiting to be discovered with all of her works inside of it um jasmine thank you it's been absolutely fascinating talking with you thanks so much for having me 